this is The Angry GM, and what you're listening now is a supplemental question and answer thing uh, that follows the proofread aloud of the article I just finished proofreading aloud for the live studio audience here in Discord Studios at The Angry Games HQ, entitled Inviting the Principal PC to Act. I'm now going to open this up to questions from the audience and share the answers with you. Um, so, Andre's Edge asks... Passing and catching the Pace Fabergé egg seems like requiring an instantaneous reaction from the GM. Should there be any timescale adjustment for different scene types? No, you should always be doing this as instantaneously as possible, except, as I noted, you also do need to allow the players some time to catch the eggs themselves. You have to just develop a sense for when um, silence has hung too long. Okay? Um... And generally, it's the the point at which you would say, uh, did you hear him? Uh, he just talked to you, okay? If, if something doesn't happen immediately, you need to use that trick of just repeating what just happened and then asking someone to take an action with it. Um, if a conversation stalls out, and I, I admit this does get weird in inter-party conversation, but it actually does keep inter-party conversation moving, especially online, if your players aren't supernatural at it. If the players are supernatural, not supernatural, like they're not like, you know, weird creatures or anything, if they're just really natural at in-character conversation, then you'll never, never, ever need to do this. But, um, you know... It's, um, but when the players are not so natural and then someone asks a question and nobody wants to be the first to speak, then there's always that the silence, right? So you, that's what you want to get rid of. Now, the thing is, um, I forgot what I, oh, I, there, there was actually a sidebar I was going to include, but I cut it because of, um, word, uh, word count. And it was just going to discuss the... Online games especially have a problem with player politeness because everybody is fully aware that talking over other people in voice over internet um, makes it just impossible to communicate because of the way, you know, the, the, the audio doesn't really know how to prefer one person over another and people, you know, it's not like uh, if you're in a room with people and several people are talking, you can focus your eyes on one person and your brain will actually use lip syncing or lip reading to almost amplify what that person is saying. Like it literally is easier to hear someone if you're looking at them, even with more background noise. You don't get that online unless you're playing with a camera. And even then you got to be playing with a big camera. And when everybody is talking at once and the camera is trying to decide who to give the big screen to, well, now you're in trouble. And everyone knows this. So everybody is afraid to be the first person to talk because absolutely the worst thing that can happen is everybody talking at once. So everybody develops this little politeness where no Nobody, um, nobody uh, will be the first person to speak and nobody can see anyone else making overtures towards speech. So all the visual cues that people use that they're not even aware of to determine whose turn it is to talk are just useless. The hesitant GM in the chat is pointing out that Discord has a priority speaker option and many, many other things also have priority speaker options. And that solves the problem of allowing the GM to steamroll players. But when three players start talking at once, it's the same kind of disaster. You can't, you know, priority speaker only works for the priority speaker and that's always gonna be the GM because if anybody's gotta steamroll everybody, it's the GM. Quiesel is saying, 
Pacing is something I really struggle with as a GM, and this article was really helpful. Are there more articles on pacing in the course calendar? Yes, indeed do. This actually is less about pacing, and I can't believe I just said indeed do. But this article is actually less about pacing and more about narration. Um, but that said, the two overlap because narration is your pacing tool. There are other tricks for pacing. Um, and I probably will get to them in future articles, especially when I start talking about keeping encounters running. And I mean, if you read between the lines too, I actually gave you an excellent example of a well-paced combat in that discussion too. And that, except for the fact that I'm not as good extemporaneously as I am at writing, um, that the dialogue, the descriptions in that are very similar to how I describe combat at my own table. So I'm not asking people to do the impossible. It does come out a little cleaner when you get to write it in advance, but you know, my players will attest that that's at least my ideal. That's what I'm striving for. Uh, Dan Floor, is there ever a time where it's a good idea to let silence hang in the air for more than a second, or is that always a pacing killer? Ah, see, now that's not silence. That's a pause. It is okay sometimes to pause for effect, okay? And if you are a good public speaker and you have a good sense of how to pace your own voice, you will know when those moments are to pause, okay? This is not about the GM pausing in their cadence to, you know, as they're delivering a description to say, you know, um, as you're glancing around the room, you can see ruined pillars holding up a vaulted ceiling and throb with magical power. And then you become aware of a strange noise. Thump, 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 right? Like, you know, you're using the cadence of your voice to deliver there. The silences you're trying to avoid are where someone should be talking and no one is. Okay, like now I've handed the action to the player. I need them to take an action because this is a fight now and fights have to be exciting and they don't. But yes, you as a GM should manage your own delivery and that's a very difficult and advanced thing to learn, um, but not what I'm talking about here. Queasel, my party has a sort of unofficial leader among the players that tends to be the most attentive and ready to act. Is it fine to favor that player PC or as the principal character, all else being equal? Or should I use this mode of address to try and encourage more attentiveness from the others? Um, the answer is, and I gave this very clearly in the article, that it literally does not matter who you designate as the principal character because it's not about the character. It's simply about never dropping the pacing egg. If you have a player who tends to be the leader anyway and you know that they're going to be the first to respond to something, they're the character that's usually in the best position to act and therefore they're most often the principal character. It is totally fine to do that. What is more dangerous is trying to encourage the players who tend to be more quiet to speak up because some players just don't want to do that. They don't want to be the center of attention. They don't want to be involved. They're playing for different reasons. See, GMs often have this idea um, that you know, their job is to kind of push players out of their comfort zone and try to make them play in different ways or if they're unattentive or, or if they're inattentive or if they're, like if they're quiet, that means they're inattentive 
first of all, because you don't know if the player is actually listening or not. You only know that they're not the quickest to respond, unless, of course, they're stacking dice or twiddling on their phone, in which case they are not attentive. And no matter what anyone says about, well, I can listen while I twiddle my phone and it helps me concentrate, they're wrong. Brains are not wired that way. Okay. But anyway, so I don't encourage GMs to try and engage people who are trying to remain disengaged. It's just not, it's not a good formula for anybody. It won't work, and you might actually be harming the player's enjoyment of the game. Okay. Andre's Edge, because he just wants to interrogate me now. I, I shouldn't have assumed he, but the name Andre. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to assume. But Andre's Edge. Following up the timescaling into the social encounters and that older run them like a sea otter article, does describing nonverbal signs in a short desk manner help maintain the flow of conversation? Also, would that be okay not to address the players by their names instead adjusting the nonverbal communications? I do like, okay, if you're playing on in real life and you have the option of using nonverbal communication and it works with your players, then yes. Use eye contact and all of those things, okay? That said, you're still probably better off um, not relying solely on body language if you can avoid it. Not everybody is as clued into body language, and if someone's attention is wandering, even if it's not visibly wandering, someone can be daydreaming and they can just have lost track of things or worrying about something else for totally legitimate reasons. I'm not saying that all inattentiveness is evil, but I am saying if somebody is not really paying attention, then saying their name is, uh, like, it cuts through a lot of inattentiveness, Okay, there, there's a phenomenon where you can hear your name being said against, against background noise and um, out of all sorts of other sounds, like the whole, you hear someone say your name at a crowded cocktail party or whatever. I love, by the way, that that's the example that we always say, you hear this at a crowded cocktail party because everybody goes to crowded cocktail parties, but that's always the example in these situations, right? It's a, because we're always going to cocktail parties and that's where we learn all our things about social interaction and attentiveness and stuff. Okay, so people's names cut through pretty much everything and get them to pay attention. Okay, so it's always good to use it if you can. But, you know, um, other than that, like, uh, yeah, as far as does describing nonverbal things in short desk manner, de describe what's happening. That's your job. Okay, the flow of conversation is maintained by you adequately describing the conversation and then inviting the players to act in such a way that they participate in the conversation without long, awkward pauses. And in conversation, by the way, in social interactions, the silence is more bad than if it happens in, um, in, in like a combat situation. Okay, because the conversation absolutely has to flow. That's also why I'm going to get to get to, to social interaction encounters eventually. And one of the things I'm going to tell GMs is when you are running a social situation, you roll all the dice behind the screen without breaking the flow of the action. Just do it. Don't, don't ask permission. Don't tell your players, okay, roll a charisma check. You did it. Okay, if you can maintain the actual flow of the conversation and roll dice behind the screen, that's how you should do it. Okay, I feel like I'm now just in a conversation between me and Andre's Edge and all the rest of you are just here to listen. Oh, Queasel is jumping in too. But I'll wait another minute for more questions.
What sorts of things do you tend to call attention to in your narration to help distinguish the classical fantasy races? Uh, well, first of all, uh, in the Angryverse, and I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, and you know that you can't say this, but first, the classic fantasy races are much more similar than varied in appearance. Okay. And like it, you know, it's like, oh, they don't have to all have exactly the same skin color or anything like that. But more in terms of there are common physical traits that are common to all members of that race. You know, elves are always shorter than humans, and elves are also extremely slender, um, and not in an emaciated way, in a graceful way. Okay, dwarves are always short and broad um, and bearded if they're male, and um, they have thick, bushy hair if they're female. And, um, and yes, this even extends to cultural things because cultures are homogenous, and there's good reasons for fantasy racial cultures to be much more homogenous than human culture. Okay, humans are very varied and diverse. That's one of the wonderful things about humans. And by, by giving that to every other race, you actually take away the specialness of that. Um, because it is, it's a very special trait um, and something that should be celebrated, quite frankly. Okay, um, If you take that away and make it not the special human thing and all your players are humans... Um, then you are essentially taking away the idea that what is special about humans and what makes them powerful and wonderful is the amazing diversity and adaptation. Which, I don't know about you, that's kind of a message I can get behind. But if that's just, you know, all sentient beings are like that, then it doesn't make people special, and it also doesn't make people think about that away from the game. So in the Angry Verse, all of the racial cultures... Um, there's very little division between a race's culture and its biology, okay? And that has a lot to do with the fact that the races were created by specific gods in specific gods' images, and, um, you, know, you know, at least, well, not anymore. The angry verse has gotten complicated religiously. Anyway, that's, this is not the question, and now I'm delivering a speech, but mainly because I'm defending myself from the inevitable, um slew of nasty remarks I'm going to get that I always get from this whenever I suggest that, you know, the fantasy races should be, um, you know, distinct and clear and categorical. But anyway, I call attention to, I, I mean, I guess if you made me sit down and do it, what I would come up with is, like, for each race, a list of five traits that I would consider to be essential to that race. Uh, two or three of them would be physical appearance traits that um, are common to all members of that race. And two or three of them would be psychological or cultural. Okay? I mean, you know. And it's fairly, you know, it's fairly archetypal. But then, again, these fantasy races... Um, as they went from being creatures of mythology to being romanticized creatures of literature, okay, what they came to express about the human experience evolved, okay? There is a reason dwarves are the way they are, and there is a reason that elves are the way they are, 
Um, and, you know, even things like werewolves and vampires, there are reasons why they are the way they are, and those all represent aspects of humanity. Um, those, those traits are why the archetypes are so strong, okay? There's a reason why the, el like, um, catfolk, like, catfolk show up all the time, but they are not nearly as strong in the human psyche uh, except the Japanese psyche. <laughs> They're not clearly as strong in the Western human psyche as elves. Okay, everybody knows elves. Even people who don't do fantasy know elves. And they know something about elves. And if they all talked about elves, they'd have a couple of different... Uh, you know, there'd be a couple of differences, but there would be a lot more similarities than you might think because there's a strong archetype behind that. And it resonates with certain human things. And I can't even remember what the question is, but somewhere in there, there's probably an answer. And I'm now rambling. Uh, okay, so what do I call attention to in the fantasy narration to help me distinguish the classic fantasy races? Appearance, personality, culture. Um, there are a few elements that are common to all members of a race. I identify those and call attention to them. Uh, one of the things that's unique, for example, the reason why uh, Beth's character, Beryllia, is an amber-eyed elf is because one of the things about elves in the Angryverse is that they all have absolutely vibrant, jewel-like eye colors. Their eye color is super-duper varied, um, which that's, well, you said everything is, you know, homogenous. I'm like, yeah, homogeneously, their eyes are like gemstones. They are brilliant, bright, and lustrous um, in all colors of the rainbow. So one of the things, when you make an elf, what's your eye color? And it's never just, oh, I have red eyes or I have brown eyes or whatever, you have amber eyes or ruby eyes or eyes like sapphires or amethysts or something like that. So, you know, that's something that I would do because that's an important feature. And all it does is just say, wow, aren't these weird? Look how non-human they are. Their eyes are like gems. They, you know, they have jewels set in their skulls. Uh, so anyway, okay. I think I'm kind of out of questions now. Uh, I'm not quite out of time, I don't think. I still have a few minutes. So if anybody else wants to ask a question, now's the time to get it in. All right, so first, Zudish is asking, uh, what's your favorite gemstone? Okay, actually, probably no surprise, but uh, amber is my top gemstone. I don't, like, it's weird. Like, what is my favorite gemstone? It's not like I wear a lot of jewelry or anything. Um, I absolutely like amber, and I like moonstone, um, because those have evocative symbolisms and they always end up in my games at some point. Uh, Amber eventually became the, def the default gemstone that was associated with primal forces and primal characters, the natural world, you know, because it is essentially fossilized tree blood. And I know that's not entirely accurate. And, you know, I don't need the actual facts. Thank you. But you know, Amber is viewed as um, part of the primal world. Moonstone is prized by elves because of its resemblance to the silver moon in the Angryverse. Um, and they love the moon. Uh, and find oh, also Bloodstone. Bloodstone is just awesome. Again, you know, it's again, just it has such a, an evocative name. And that says, like, it's so loaded. So, yes, I love Bloodstone. Uh, not, you know, like... Anyway, 
Dan Flores asking, I'm definitely guilty of the so what do you all do? blank stares. So I want to say this article was super helpful and eye-opening in that regard. Okay, I definitely sympathize and I got to tell you, it took me two years of failing to run games online to figure this shit out. Okay, and it was only in the last six months or so that I started like experimenting with these techniques at my online table. And then I started taking them back to physical tables and I'm like, holy shit, this is a pace changer. So yeah, this is, this is hard won knowledge. Um, and Doug is saying, I'm used to referring to players by their character names. I never thought to address the player name as well. That's another thing I never used. Uh, I always used to use character names. I always thought it was more immersive that way. But when I started changing it up, people actually commented on it and they started to say things like, hey, I like how you do this. Um, and then, you know, I would ask him questions like, you know, well, you know, what, what do you like about it? Because I, I know that's stupid. Like, oh, can you tell me? So you like how I do that? Like, by the way, if you don't want to ask a specific question, the best way to uh, get someone to keep talking about something you want to know more about is just to say to them, oh, so you and then repeat the thing they just said and then just trail off and then they'll start talking some more. Do you plan to write more tips about running online games specifically, asks self-help. I would love that. I, uh, I do, probably. I probably plan to incorporate advice that works uh, well online specifically. Like in my articles, I'll mention, I will do things like, hey, if you're running online, do this instead. Or if you're running at a meat space table, this works really well, but don't try to do this online or things like that. I'm not sure that I would ever want to specifically write an article about running online games. And I'm going to say one of the reasons I don't is because I really don't want to encourage bad behavior. And running games online is the worst way to run games. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I basically encourage you. It's like, look, if you want to run a game, but you can only have a shit game, do it online. Um, so, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, I think that's that's all the questions. So... Um, uh, yeah, so I'm going to, I was just reading cause, uh, some comments popped up in the, in the, yeah. Okay. So there's a few comments in the non Q and a thread. Uh, so October Foundry loved the example dialogue. Very fun to listen to. I really enjoy writing it. Um, and it's fun to read out. Um, especially the brown pants joke. I wonder if anybody knows the joke to which that is the punchline. Um, October Foundry is thanking me for the proofread aloud and wishing me and Tiny a safe trip to New York. Thank you. And Queasel wants to make Elven low light vision moonlight specific, like they can see as well in moonlight as they can in sunlight, but not other forms of darkness like caves. I really like that too. And I think that in the angry verse, elves now see by moonlight and starlight, but not by um, like firelight, you know, like other forms of dim light. Yeah, I like that. I'm stealing that. It, you know, you posted it in the Angry Discord and it is now copyright Angry Games Incorporated 2023, all rights reserved. You can't use that and I can. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to call it a day. I'll talk to you all again. In, I guess in two weeks, I'll be recording the next proofread aloud. So... Bye.